1: Hello. Today on The Loopcast, I have Dr. Tom Nichols, and we are discussing his book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge, and Why It Matters. Um, Dr. Nichols has been on the show twice previously, um, and we'll uh, post those shows along with this show. Um, so before we get started, a little mini-review. Um, this book is, is sharp, in, in not only in the sense that it's intelligent, but also in the sense that it hits you in the gut. And it's, it's like every page is like you just let out an oof because it's, it captures an, the, the intellectual moment, the, the intellectual feeling of our period so well. And as you'll see in this conversation, you'll kind of understand why. Um, I do recommend it. Um, if you want to sort of, if you're like me like, and you, you've come up on Twitter, like you've been on Twitter since 2008. And you've made good friends, ex- expert friends, and you've noticed a change, this book sort of will help you understand why that sort of change occurred. Um, so, for, um, for the sake of this interview, we're not gonna review the book um, in, in terms of its thesis. We're just gonna sort of divide it into two parts. Um, the first part will be, uh, you know, sort of understanding the post 2016 election environment and sort of. Uh, the intellectual environment and the political environment, and then the next half will be um, sort of looking at critiques of the book and sort of what it means to be an expert and sort of doing a post-mortem, you know, who who's responsible for killing expertise and sort of the idea of established knowledge. Um, so with that, please uh, welcome Dr. Tom Nichols.
0: Hi, good to be with you again.
1: Oh, how's it going? Um, I want to start off with sort of one of the biggest consequences of the 2016 election was the right the rise of the new right and the rise of the alt right, and I think in, in in sort of both instances, you have this use of conspiracy theories and alt facts. Sort of, if you can't sort of explain this to us and, and you know within your thesis, why is this? Why did this suddenly happen in 2016, in the 2016 election? The election. Sure. Um, first of all, the book,
0: the word that I explains a lot of all of this problem with the attacks on established knowledge and the death of expertise is uh, narcissism. That we have become an incredibly thin-skinned, narcissistic society. And conspiracy theories really are... the the ultimate expression of narcissism you know only i understand only i really know everything is about me you know there's even a great line in the old x-files series um where the chief conspiracy theorist you know fox Mulder, uh is going on and on he's stringing out some kind of complicated theory and his partner turns to him and says you know not everything is about you Mulder." and that kind of captures the problem with conspiracy theorists: that they think everything is about them. They think they have uncovered some kind of secret knowledge that makes them important. And I think this ties into the death of expertise because one of the one of the reasons people attack expertise and experts and develop these conspiracy theories is because they feel powerless, because they feel like the world is moving too fast, uh, because they feel like things are uh, spinning out of control and happening. Uh, things are happening to them rather than them being in control of events. And you see this throughout history, that conspiracy theories in particular gain a lot of currency after moments of great social trauma. Uh, after World War I, after the Kennedy assassination, after 9-11, where there are these collectively felt moments of dislocation. I would say the period we're going through now is closer to the 1930s, when you had a lot of people moving from the countryside to the cities, where the you know the villages were kind of depopulating, but the cities were growing. There was a lot of alienation and um, people feeling unmoored from their traditional values and traditional family support networks, and that contributed to the growth, not only of fascism, which I, I actually don't worry about that much in America, uh, but it did contribute to the growth of a lot of conspiracy theorizing and anti-intellectualism, because when people are afraid and the world is a scary place, they cling to what they know. But I think in, in terms of the alt-right in particular, it, it tends to be um, conspiracy theorizing by unhappy young men who need some explanation for why the world isn't treating them as well as they think the world should treat them. And so they come up with very complicated, um, sometimes even ingenious explanations of you know why they're still living in mom's basement. Uh, but that doesn't make it true
1: right. so then, in your view, what happens to um, public discourse and policy debate if If everybody's entitled to their own facts, everybody's entitled to their own conspiracy theory, how do you how do you move forward with policy? I mean what, you don't oh.
0: you don't, and that's what happens is that you get the kind of situation you have now where we're we're living through this kind of temporary period of mob rule where you have a bunch of scared Republicans and angry Democrats. And, and this is not to put the Republicans on the hook and take the Democrats off. The Republicans and Democrats both are dealing with a lot of ignorant, angry mobs who want completely impossible and contradictory things done. Um, and so you're getting, you know, um, policy because the Republicans are in control at this moment. And this, is, of course, is where I always remind people that I don't speak for the Naval War College. Uh, that the Republicans are in control at this moment, and so you're getting a lot of dumb policy that because people are shouting loudly for it. you know repeal Obamacare. The problem is the average person has no idea what's in Obamacare, um, what repealing it means, how that would work, why they're replacing it. All they know is that it was something they've been chanting for the past seven years and uh, and so you know Congress has kind of shrugged its shoulders and said, okay, I guess we 're going to repeal Obamacare because then we can get to the tax cuts that the rest of our constituents really want, which is to say wealthy, more educated constituents. Um, The other possibility, and the one that I actually worry about more, is that what happens under these circumstances is because this epidemic of stupidity becomes so widespread that experts and government administrators and technocrats and business people and everybody else simply say, you know, the world has to function i mean roads have to get made and airplanes have to fly and televisions have to go on and you know all that stuff so let's just not ask the people what they want let's just let's just give it to them um and assume that if we keep them happy enough with enough big screen tvs and xboxes and you know material um a certain amount of material satisfaction that we can pretty much run the world the way we want to I was challenged on this the other night by someone who said, you know, experts are running the world because they have too much power. My response to this is experts do run a big chunk of the world, but by default. That they're running the world by default because people are simply not educating themselves enough to be engaged meaningfully in the political process. And I think that's, that's, once we pass through this phase of kind of, excuse me, populist madness that what we're going to end up defaulting back to is some kind of technocracy. And I think both of those are terrible, terrible outcomes for democracy.
1: So then I I want to maybe look at a more general picture then. How do you, how do we gauge the health of democracy within, you know, sort of established knowledge being challenged and sort of, you know, people not recognizing established knowledge. I mean, what does that do for in terms of, you know, not only the health of our our government and our sort of system of living, but also how we hold people in power accountable? I mean, if, you know, if, if we look at structurally, you know, gerrymandering, plus the use of conspiracies, plus people are entitled to their own facts. I mean, how do we, how do you create, you know, a positive change? you know, in order to sort of change. Well, the,
0: I mean, constantly. I think, um, I, I think, um, first, I think people who are not getting their way in the political environment, whether they're liberals or conservatives have to stop blaming mechanical and structural issues like gerrymandering um, or, um, uh, you know, money or the other myriad things they blame in the end the the responsibility for governing this country rests on the shoulders of the American voter. When we had an incredibly divisive election in twenty sixteen, so divisive that only six out of ten people voted. Now think about that. You know, when we say, Oh, the most divisive election in a generation and um just last night in the past few days people have been coming at me and saying, Well, this is because of voter suppression. Look, nobody suppressed forty percent of the vote in the American Republic. People. The fact of the matter is, people are lazy. They are uh, disengaged. They choose not to vote. They choose not, and they choose not to vote, especially in state and local elections, which is where there is a huge amount of power, simply lying in the street, waiting for anybody who wants to pick it up. People. People forget. But a big part of the, the reason that the Republicans run things these days is because they were the one, while, you know, uh, liberals were marching in the streets and carrying signs and doing dumb 60s chants, um, conservatives were doing things like getting control of state houses. Um, and that could change. It used to be the other way around. When I was a young guy starting in politics, uh, Democrats and Democratic machine politics controlled a lot of state houses. Um, so you know this can go back and forth the problem is it's always going to be power traded back and forth between the same groups of people as long as everybody else in the country is simply too ignorant to make an an informed vote about which what they want i mean this you know poll after poll when voters are asked what do you want they they always want basically kind of a chauvinistic socialism, that is, you know, I want the government to respond to me and give me stuff and not to other people. And there that produces nothing. Uh, and what happens there is that people who then run the economy default to, well, we can't make any of these people happy, so we'll throw some bones. The left will throw out bones of political correctness and have arguments about bathrooms, and the right will throw out uh, bones about... Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the same arguments about bathrooms, actually, if you think about it. And meanwhile, the people who, you know, sit skyscrapers in New York and Chicago get back to work. <clears throat> so I think that's a very unhealthy sign for democracy. Because it used to be that people understood the economy has to work, our foreign policy has to be effective. We disagreed about how to do that and sometimes we elected Democrats, and sometimes we elected Republicans, Uh, but now we can't even agree on how to do that because, you know, we can't agree on Syria policy, not because we are liberals and conservatives, but because nobody can find Syria on a damn map. And as long as that's true, the people who know where Syria is on a map are the ones who are going to have that discussion, and they're going to work out what to do about it. And, and the conspiracy theorists and the populace can rage about it all day long. But as long as most people in this country are just too stupid to be able to read a map, that's how, that by default, that's going to be the outcome.
1: So let me ask you, is this something that's unique to America? Because in, in some ways, your thesis implicates the Internet, social media and things that are sort of broadly experienced in other democracies in the eu for example in south korea for example and yet in our research for this show we didn't really see these sort of things come up in the in the eu or in but but you did i mean you saw it with brexit i mean the brexit vote specifically
0: relied on the ignorance of a huge swath of the british electorate um and in the book I, I point out that the day after Brexit, even some of the, the Leave proponents were already backtracking and saying, "Wow, well, we didn't say we were going to, you know, kick out all the Muslims or, you know, forbid future Muslim immigration from the EU." And and the and the Leave voters who I think woke up with a hangover, you know, fifty-one percent of the country went on a bender and woke up the next morning and said, "Geez, did, you know, did we really do this?" We're already mad about it because it turns out they were voting for something that they weren't actually voting for. They didn't understand what they were voting for. Um, I'll tell you that the uh, book—I think the the biggest measure of the book's resonance internationally has been that it is um, being picked up internationally. I mean, it's it's been—it's actually—it's on uh, the—it's for weeks now. It's been on the non-fiction bestseller list in Canada of all places, where it, it's been an immensely popular book. Um, the rights have been um, uh, negotiated, and there will be versions in uh, China, Korea, and Japan at this point. <clears throat> and we're expecting more. There have been several articles um, in the Italian and Austrian and German press. Um, I've done several interviews in the U.K., so, it's a developed world problem, and I think, again, it goes back to this flood of information that makes people think that they are smarter than they are, and it, and it gives them a shortcut to believe they're smarter than they are. They say, well, you know, I'm surrounded by information, I have 24-7 access to the news, I have the internet, I went to college because now everybody goes to college, therefore I'm smart, smart. but when in fact you know, they're simply not nearly as informed as they think they are. So this is, this is I would argue, um, not a global phenomenon in the sense of every corner of the earth, but a developed world phenomenon that where there are people with high degrees of education, access to the globalized network of information, um, access to the globalized communications network, that, that this is a problem that's now happening. From um, Europe to North America to Asia and, and uh, anywhere where there's that level of development.
1: Interesting. So I, I want to maybe um, switch footing a little and, and discuss in this period of where established knowledge is being challenged. How do we, how do sort of the expert pool? How does the expert pool sort of replenish itself? In the sense of, I understand yeah. like you know from your transition in the 80s and 90s you had guys who had been studying russia you know for 40 years prior and now you know russia experts are sort of trying to replenish themselves but 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 by the same token they're coming up in this environment of alt facts and conspiracy theories i mean is that is that an issue in the sense of replenishing who who's an expert on the on a on this particular topic
0: it's interesting. It's an interesting question
1: because you've hit on two
0: things. One is, how do the expert communities replenish themselves? And the second question is, does all of this obsession with conspiracy theories and all facts, you know, affect that expert pool? So let me take that second question first and say, there it's almost entirely separated from that stuff. The people who are coming up, who are genuine experts in Russia, who speak Russian, who have advanced degrees in these things, who have studied Russian history and culture, I mean, to to become a Russian expert, um, you know, I didn't just study Russian guns and bombs. I mean, I had to read the philosophy of Alexander Herzen, and I had to understand the development of the early Russian Orthodox Church, and I had to, you know, read Chekhov, and I mean, that's, you know, immerse myself in that culture. So that takes a long time. Um, It's like growing a tree to replace another tree in a forest, it's not something that's obvious to the to the casual outside observer, and it happens almost entirely in insulation from all the kookery that goes on uh, uh, and all the conspiracy theorizing, just as it did in the 80s and 90s, by the way. I mean, you know, there were um, people who thought that, you know, the Soviet experts at places like Columbia University, where I went to school, um, you know, were... Uh, all part of a big communist, Jewish, trilateralist, capitalist, banker, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't affect anything we were doing. Um, so the the second part of it is expert communities replenish themselves by training their replacements. I mean, um, I always think that in my own case, as a Russia expert, my family tree of experts goes back to people I've never known Um uh, <laughs> one of the greatest and earliest students of the Stalinist era Soviet Union was a guy named Merle Feinsod who established um, a big part of that program at Harvard University back in the 40s. Um, I I feel like Feinsod's grandson because one of Feinsod's students uh, became my mentor at Georgetown so I was one removed from that and now, some of my students are young academics and policy experts in Russia stuff, uh, 20 years younger than I am, because I trained them back in the 90s uh, when I was teaching at, at places like Dartmouth. So, like I said, it's like forest replenishment, but because it happens gradually, people it's not obvious to people who are outside the profession.
1: So, I mean, do you worry that sort of, the more Twitter experts, I mean, let me maybe rephrase it. When you do, you feel like you're in competition with more like something that I'll just call Twitter experts when it comes to influence and sort of getting your point of view out there. So, for instance, um, Louise Mensch, somebody who um, you know, you read through her, her her Twitter feed and it's it's this weird combination of being informed but also conspiracy theory. So, I mean, as an expert, do you feel like there's a competition between um, sort of the more rigorous and factual side of the debate versus the more conspiratorial, you know, the, the mix of conspiracy and fact side of the debate?
0: Yeah, there is. I think that there's two realms of expert activity and the competition with. The Twitter experts only happens in social media. I mean, I I don't really ever worry about the self-appointed Twitter experts. I mean, you know, with all due respect to Louise, who you know has actually gotten some things right um, with her sources, and I think then has taken a lot of what she's learned, you know, gotten way over her skis on a lot of other stuff. Um, You know. it's not like louise mensch is ever going to be refereeing manuscripts that i write um that that area of you know professional writing about russia articles books things like that that's going to happen among experts because that's an established field of knowledge where where we end up in in competition with with each other uh, and i don't just mean louise i mean all of the kind of self-appointed experts on things, is in the social realm, is in the realm of public activity. Now, some of those, you know, there are, t- in, in a very few of those cases, some of those self-educated experts have actually been quite effective. I mean, you know, you've got uh, Elliot Higgins and, and folks like that who have come out and, and really um, gone head-to-head with uh, people who, like Cy Hirsch, um, as well, someone should have. The problem is the public, you know, conflates it all. If I'm talking about Russia and Syria, and Hirsch is talking about Russia and Syria, and Louise is talking about Russia and Syria, and you know, some and and you know, your aunt Rose in Indiana is talking about Syria. We're all just a bunch of voices on Twitter, and it becomes difficult for people to pick us apart. And it and it does encourage this terrible intellectual habit of saying. Well, you're all here arguing on Twitter, so you're all peers. We're not all peers. Um, some of us know what we're doing, and most of us don't. So, yes, it's it's a problem. And the problem is there is no gate, there's no barrier to entry on Twitter or Facebook or with with blogs. Um, you know, when st- when people ask me who should I trust, the first thing I ask is if you're reading something on the on the internet, ask yourself does this publication have an editor. Does it have a fact checker? Does it have people it has to answer to? Um, this is the reason I took down, you may remember, because of course you and I have been doing this for a long time, you may remember that I used to have a blog online called The War Room, and I took it down because people were starting to quote it as authoritative, and I said, look, my online blog is just me, it's just me kind of thinking out loud, I, I always used to joke with my students, I'd say, don't quote my blog, the editor of that thing is an idiot. Uh, <laughs> You know that, that the editor of that that thing has no quality control. He publishes anything that guy writes, uh, and so I took it down because I just thought it was unhealthy to be contributing to that to the blogosphere. And now I don't write anything that isn't basically isn't vetted by an editor, whether it's at the Federalist uh, or at USA Today or the New York Times or wherever I write. Somewhere there's an editor who looked at what I wrote first before it ended up on the internet, and I think. Um, and, and I, I find it unfortunate that a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, that gets out there, um, escapes that kind of editorial control and, and that we're all put on equal footing as experts because we certainly are not.
1: So I want to, um, switch over to, um, looking at the critiques of your book, um, so as I've said, um, what critiques? There were no. The book was perfect. <laughs> 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 I mean, like, um, basically, I mean, what what do I intend these critique this critique section of the conversation to be? Is sort of a postmortem, in the sense that, um, you know, the subtitle of your book is the campaign against established knowledge. So I'm sort of curious: is it to start us off with, you know, is it really these greater changes? in the, how we consume media in in this environment, or is it the changing nature of what an expert is? So, for instance, um, you know, let's just start off with a general question of, you know, what happens when the experts get it wrong? Right. Well,
0: first, um, let me just point out to, to your listeners, there's an entire chapter of the book called When Experts Are Wrong. And I talk about all of the things that can go wrong from honest, well-intentioned error right up to fraud and abuse and falsification and all of that, that other stuff. Um, let me try and be out in front and be even more um, you know, self-critical and, and, and lay out some of the criticism because you, you're being too polite about the criticisms of the book because there have been some you know, pretty steamy ones. Um, the, the first, uh, actually the, the New York times reviewed it and Michiko Kakutani didn't think it was that well-written that I will take issue with. I think the book's a lot of fun and I think it's an easy read. Uh, but you know, leaving aside the stylistic issue here, um, there were criticisms, uh, Glenn Reynolds at USA today who reviewed the, um, foreign affairs version, the excerpt, um, really found it to be kind of arrogant. And and he noted that expertise have mostly killed themselves uh, rather than the death of expertise uh, because of our misconduct and because of our arrogance and because of our disconnection or our lack of connection to the average American and the average person. And I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think um, one of the things that I I thought about after I wrote the book um, is that I probably should have said more about empathy. Because it's it's easy for experts to lose empathy because we live in a world where things are obvious to us, um, you know, where we deal with data, we deal with levels of abstraction and theorizing, where, you know, to, that solutions and the the nature of things, because we deal with them every day, they become second nature to us. I had a I had a teacher in junior high, in, um, high school who uh, was terrible she was always one of my models for, for how to never be a teacher because she taught trigonometry and to her trigonometry was as, was as natural as breathing because she had done it for 40 years and she had no patience with, with people who did not understand trigonometry because for as long as she had been alive, she understood, you know, triangles. Um, and I think experts can fall into that. Even I can, you know, it's like, where I can say to people, "Look, this is you know this thing I'm saying about Russia is so obvious, and how can anybody, how could you be so stupid as to not get that?" Um, and and I think um, the people who have pointed that out, I think, have a fair beef about you know where where sometimes I get lo- too lost in uh, the expert community um, in that sense. I think another criticism of the book that um, uh, stung a bit, I guess. Was that I? I really didn't talk about the way in which um, experts d- do detach themselves from society. Um, but I, um, I, and I'm, but, and I've wrestled with that. But I've also, I guess, I've, I've come, I've made my peace with it by saying that I think the bigger problem is that society was detaching itself from experts because of this narcissistic insistence on um having their own way and and i'll get get back to your question in a moment by telling you a quick story i i was traveling and i gave a talk the other night out in um minnesota and a doctor came up to me and he said you know he said i don't in some ways it's he said i don't know how to deal with the way patients come to me now he said he, he had a um a, a patient who um, their child needed a procedure and he recommended against it. He said, it's very dangerous, likely to fail. Uh, it's, it's not a good idea. You know, it has a high rate of complication, but apparently the mom had done some reading, right? The classic I've Googled it. I've taken a look and he said, well, I'm just not going to, I, I just don't feel I should do this procedure. And she said, well, don't you have to do what I tell you? And you could see this, you know, this doctor who had spent his life helping children, kind of, he recoiled at this notion, well, I don't care if it's dangerous, it's what I want, you have to do what I tell you. And I think for all the criticisms I've taken about the distance from experts to elites, uh, excuse me, from elites and, and experts and, you know, kind of the people who run the world to the average person, I, I think I'm also increasingly shocked in the aftermath of the book by, by the pushback from lay people who basically say pediatric surgeons are like, uh, waiters in a restaurant who have to simply serve up what I, what I want.
1: Shit. <laughs> that's, that's awful.
0: It was an amazing story. I mean, and he's, and the coda to the story is that he wouldn't do the procedure. She went and found another doctor who I guess, you know, fee for service or he needed the money or something. And, um, he did the procedure and the whole thing went as badly as you would expect. And, um, there was a I don't, there was a pretty awful outcome. And, you know, I'm sure that that mother walks around now saying doctors are quacks because some doctor did exactly what she demanded. He do rather than listen to the doctor who said, my responsibility to you as your, as your doctor is to not do this, is to tell you that this is incredibly dangerous.
1: So, I mean, uh- I think a lot of people would agree with that point of view um, that you really shouldn't, you know, argue with a, a pediatric surgeon. But I think, uh, I think for my generation specifically, I think a lot of the mistrust in expertise it, it focuses around sort of the financial crisis, the war in Iraq, and then mm-hmm. sort of the larger war on terrorism war in Afghanistan. I think, um, to sort of the financial—that's
0: that, the new, that's the new Holy Trinity. Um, there's two of them, you know. The, these days, the Holy Trinity is the financial crisis, the war in Iraq, and the war on terrorism. When I was writing the book, uh, older f- folks, who, um, older colleagues who were reading early drafts, said uh, their Holy Trinity was the Vietnam, and Challenger. <laughs> um, so you know, there's always this. Here are the three things you know that, that shows that experts are morons. Um, you know, Thalidomide Vietnam Challenger, in this case, the financial collapse, um, the war on terror, and the Iraq war. And so I, I, I'm going to say two things, um, and, and one of them I think will be – I guess both of them will be controversial. One is, um, yes, experts get things wrong, but by and large, they get things more right than wrong. Even during the Vietnam War, which I would point out to most listeners was not an unpopular war with the mass of the American people until the early 1970s, really until after Tet, um, that um, uh, the you know the, there was um, arguments from experts that we were doing this wrong, and the best and the brightest, which is a, a term that's always thrown at has been thrown at me many times, actually does not refer to experts. That that book is about how people who thought they were good at one thing were good at everything. That, you know, Robert McNamara, I ran a car company, so therefore I can run a war. That's exactly the opposite message of my book. My, my book is don't be Robert McNamara. Don't be an expert. Um, but but that um, you know while Vietnam was going on the other thing that happened was experts created a stable system of global peace and international trade and prosperity that brought the Cold War to a, a, a peaceful end that created a standard of living that human beings had never seen before that created an interconnected global society that actually regardless of, you know, what people in the Midwest who are angry about globalization will tell you, actually created an amazing standard of living and and, uh, higher per capita income for Americans at all levels. So, you know, this constant focus on, yes, but here's the one thing you got wrong, um, I would argue that it wasn't even that wrong, that, you know, part of Vietnam was fighting the Cold War and whether it was done competently. Of course, Lyndon Johnson lied to the American people, um, but the experts who were working on Vietnam, were not the ones who were lying about it. Um, you know, it was the politics... This this is something I find infuriating about the expert debate in general. These people say, you experts caused X, Y, and Z, to which my answer is, no, you voters put people in place that then chose bad ideas, many of which experts told them not to do. Um, the financial crisis in particular really rankles the hell out of me because I still argue that the financial crisis which was of course it was you know engendered by guys taking huge stupid risks and doing all kinds of dumb things with money which to, to me is not an expert I mean you didn't have economists out there saying hey let's create incredibly complicated you know financial instruments uh, that that will bring down the economy the, you know you did not have economics journals arguing for doing that what you had was the creation of a potential to do this because people were taking out mortgages they can't afford, and this is the thing that makes everybody nuts when I say it. Because my answer is, you know, you couldn't, you could not play with bad mortgages until there were enough bad mortgages to play with. Um, and I, I, I recommend to people the movie The Big Short. Um, which you know is a great book about it, but in a quicker version, you know they point out in the first ten minutes nobody did stuff like this with bad mortgages in the 1970s because there weren't any bad mortgages in the 1970s. People weren't allowed to do the things they weren't allowed to do. You know, was no money down mortgages or interest only mortgages or all these other crazy things that people couldn't afford, and yet when things go bad, they turn around and they scapegoat the experts to say, you should have told us, you should have been more paternal. You should have told us that we can't do this. And uh, I find it amazing. I also point out to people, and and then I'll get off this rant, You know, when people say, you experts and the Iraq war, uh, I lived through both Iraq wars. Neither of them were unpopular. That notion that somehow experts dragged citizens along into this um, you know, is really revisionist history. I worked in a politician's office during the first Gulf War and I was, you know, intimately involved in keeping tabs on the second Gulf War. I wrote about it and, you know, I was paying attention to it and I was teaching it as a subject. And, you know, there were there weren't people marching in the streets. Uh, um, you know, there was not a second Vietnam in 2002. Most, most Americans in the, and most Brits uh, the two countries that were most in favor of it, a majority in both countries were in favor of taking down Saddam Hussein. So this notion that somehow we were lied to and we didn't know and who could tell, I, I, I just, I'm sorry, I think this is all Monday morning quarterbacking from people who want to escape political responsibility for the things they voted for. As I always tell people who complained about the Iraq war, you weren't mad enough to not reelect George Bush in 2004. And that to me says a lot.
1: So I want to maybe um, push back on on some of this. Um, so with the financial crisis, I, I, your point is I think is dead on about you know a lot of people didn't have to take on bad mortgage debt. But by the same token, um, I think the beginning of the financial crisis is the removal, you know, the removal Glass Steagall, which is to say I think I think a lot of people and why they have mistrusted a lot of financial expertise is. A lot of the, the story of the financial crisis is abusing expertise in order to achieve uh,
0: political goals, gains,
1: political goals in the political. sense of removing Glass-Steagall and in in the sense of challenging a lot of the legal infrastructure around. But You know, what was the political goal behind all of that? Aside from,
0: I mean, clearly there, that, you know, there were there were guys in in New York who were saying, hey, if we do this, we're all going to get rich, you know, like monty burns would say rich richer than nazis um (laughs) you know (laughs) we'll all be richer than nazis but the um but what was the other i mean think about where expert opinion expert views got overridden by what the public wanted because underneath all of this was this political notion a bipartisan political notion shared by Bill Clinton and George Bush that everybody ought to be able to buy a house. No matter how creditworthy you were, no, no matter how unstable economically unstable you were, you should be able to buy a house. And so they lowered those requirements. I mean, I when I was uh, moving, at one point I had to move from Newport to Philadelphia uh, and then, Changed back because we had an illness in my family. I had a I had a no doc loan. It was amazing. Now I I knew exactly how much it would cost me, and I knew you know I never had a financial problem with it. But it amazed me to say you know people who want houses, if they really want houses, they can come in, take out a no doc loan. Great, and real estate agents are not in the business of telling you to not buy a house. So. You know, this, you're right, getting rid of Glass-Steagall and all of the money-making, but in the end, all of this was in the service of a cockamamie political idea that the, you know, when I hear these stories, what I always hear is the American public saying, save us from ourselves, stop giving us what we want, because we keep screwing it up. If we hadn't touched the housing market and we hadn't injected this political view that everybody should buy a house and, you know, that the American dream is that no matter how broke or financially irresponsible you are, you should be able to buy a house, we wouldn't be in this mess. But that's what caused it. There weren't experts in 1985 saying, you know what we really ought to do? We ought to make it possible for, you know, even the the least financially stable person to buy a house. That was a political judgment.
1: Okay, I want to maybe switch foot to more national security stuff. Um, I think I, you know, this is a question from somebody that follows us on Twitter, and it's it's basically goes, you know, after 16 years of doing counterterrorism, has counterterrorism expertise made a difference? I think, um, in the sense, and I think to sort of broaden that question, I mean, you know, you're seeing the Trump administration going back into Afghanistan, you know, using a, a counterterrorism sort of discourse. And me personally, like I, I've been reading um sort of letters and like, you know, books about the Soviet experience in mm. Afghanistan. And it, it just, I can't tell if it, it makes me nauseous or it just makes me giggle in an ironic way because it almost seems like you know, 16 years and we're just doing the same thing, you know, getting involved, yeah. not getting involved, yeah. going back in. And my question is, you know, at one point, when do the experts give us sort of new ideas and new ways to approach a problem? Because it seems like for 16 years, we've been doing, since 9-11, we've been doing sort of on and off the same thing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a fair point. I mean, look, you know, I'm not here to, to, to defend experts to the wall, on on every issue, and I think that the handling of the war on terror has been, um, you know, I I, I have a lot of criticisms about the competence of the way we've handled the war on terror. Um, I'm going to just call a small foul on comparing us too closely to the Soviet Union, because remember, what the Soviets were trying to do in Afghanistan was to prop up their preferred communist government and control every square inch of the country against an insurgency. So it, it was a different what, – what the Soviets were trying to do was different, and their failure was a different kind of failure because they were basically trying to turn Afghanistan into, you know, Poland or Hungary or, you know, part of the socialist commonwealth, and that meant, you know, in a control freak kind of way, trying to control every inch of, of territory. We're doing something different. We're basically trying to go in there and, like, you know, surgically take out these cancer cells – that we don't want to to spread too fast. That you know we're not trying to create outposts um, like the British or the Russians, where we're controlling every square inch of Afghanistan. With that said, the biggest problem with the war on terror is that we overreacted to it so badly sixteen years ago that we flooded it with money, and money attracts bullshit. Um, there's I, that's an old political science saying <laughs> um that if you flood enough money into something you will you know create kind of carpet-bagging charlatans who show up and say yeah i know about this um you know because uh, there's money in it because there's consulting contracts and because there's um you know jobs opening up my heart sinks every time i go to washington um, where i first I first moved to Washington thirty years ago and then left twenty odd years ago, um, my heart sinks every time I see all these glass boxes and new buildings and skyscrapers and office buildings that I know were built with homeland security money because I know they 're full of people you know who, who I think are trying to do their best but probably don 't have a real good idea of what they 're doing because there was just all this money i my um, my wife is not from washington so the last time we were there i was kind of trying to show her you know places i'd lived and neighborhoods i knew and i and she looked around at all this new construction i said well this is pretty much now the city that homeland security built and i think that's a terrible outcome and it's terrible for expertise because it simply attracts people into that who don't know what they're doing um but who have every incentive because of the money the power the position the nice office in these new glass boxes to say yeah i'm a counterterrorism guy sure I, i you know i took a course on that once uh i knew a guy um i was in the army for two years uh whatever it is and and that is a really dangerous thing so i i think it's not just our strategy in afghanistan that's a problem um it's that we're trying to do this Without unduly upsetting the American people who have gotten into their head that our job is to completely disengage, uh, interestingly enough, every president since now, from you know Obama and Trump, um, from late, the late Bush to the um, administration to Obama and Trump, have all figured out that, huh, you can't just, you know pick up your toys and go away. The rest of the world has other opinions about whether that's a good idea. Um, but on the other hand, we're also just trying to spend these gobs of money in an, in an internal industry that's now become a self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, I argued years ago that there shouldn't be a Department of Homeland Security and that it should have been disbanded. And now it's not going to go anywhere. it's going to be full people who are you know, showing up to work there who may not have you know, the kind of experience that people at CIA and DIA and NSA and others who have longer experience in these kinds of matters have, but that's, we made that mistake 16 years ago and I don't see us undoing it anytime
1: soon. So um, for the last question of this critique part, before we get to how, you know, how do we make expertise great again? um, (laughs) What, I mean, what happens when experts engage on Twitter and you like, like if I didn't know better, like I have a hard time telling Sometimes on Twitter, who are the experts and who are the lay people? And what I mean by that is I think it, it, Twitter has gotten so toxic that the people that you would consider experts have basically descended or ascended, depending on your viewpoint, um, into, you know, trolling is the best mm-hmm. word I can use. And I think like like people like John Schindler, who is, you know, for all accounts, pretty, uh, you know, a, a well-read well-written smart expert but yet when you go through his twitter account it's you have a hard time telling who's the troll and who's being trolled because i think um i think everybody you know on twitter sort of does this too but i mean how can we as as observers tell the difference if if really on the medium on twitter facebook whatever you know it's you're engaging in the same methods in the same way Right. Um, well, first, that I should say, you know,
0: John's a friend and I've known him for a long time. And, you know, it's I, I, I've told John that he throws elbows a little hard on Twitter sometimes. And uh, I think he knows he does. Um, and, you know, it's that it's not I don't think it's particularly productive, but it doesn't make John any less smart. My my answer to this is, you know, and I do it, too. I mean, look, I you know, every talk I've given about this. Where I talk about how you know we're not nice to each other on Twitter, and we you know social media is making us meaner. I always have to kind of hang my head and say, you know, every now and then I take a, I punch down and I you know take a clever shot at somebody. Um, in my in my case in self defense, I usually say that I reserve that for people who have shown up to try to you know simply barrel into my timeline to say something rude, um, at which case I you know decide that i can be not just ruder but funnier um but all of us do it at some point because that's the nature of the medium my answer would be to say don't judge experts by uh what they're snarking about on twitter or 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 also to you know take things in context if you see an expert being a smart ass you know check back three tweets because this is something that really makes me crazy about the way social media works people come in and they say uh you know they react to some tweet and they won't read back just one or two to kind of catch up with where the conversation is. But the more important thing is, if you see a tw- an expert on Twitter or a self-proclaimed expert on Twitter, my advice is to use the same standard that experts apply to each other. Never mind what the person's saying right there. What have they written? How can you? Ju- what is? How much has this person written? What have they published? Where can you read their thoughts at greater length? Um, you know, for whatever arguments you might have about john's twitter style for example he publishes a column you know every, every week or two weeks in the observer i mean he sits down and he writes his thoughts out two thousand words at a time and if you really want to know what he thinks he puts it out there for you to read he's written multiple books he's written articles um and i think that's a really important thing to say okay this guy seems like a jerk where can i go to read uh, you know i'm talking about myself here as well you know this guy seems really kind of snotty or he's being ill-tempered where can i go to read what what he writes in a longer form you know edited and annotated And and i think we put that out there so that's why i always think it's really important for self proclaimed experts of any kind real or fake that the currency of the the coin of the realm is you can claim anything you want show me what you've written show me the work you've done and let me judge that
1: that's a good point. So I want to end our conversation with, um, how do we make expertise great again? And I, I know I'm sort of borrowing the Trump language, um, but yeah. Speaking of trolling, Cena. Um, but I, I'm really curious. I mean, how do we, how do we sort of revive or um, restore the importance of the public intellectual of the of an expert of a public expert? I mean, is this is this something generational that we have to wait until a certain ideology dies off? Or is this something that can be done like with a publicist yeah, and a hype um, machine? I mean, I don't <laughs> Excuse me. I think
0: um, actually it's going to take time and it's probably going to take something bad happening. Um, you know, whenever the issue of, you know, the, the, the most obvious campaign against established knowledge, for example, is the anti-vaxxers. Um, and, you know, what's going to end the anti-vaccine thing is a pandemic. It's really easy when everybody's healthy and you live in an affluent neighborhood and, you know, you spend too much time on the Internet to say, well, I don't think my kid needs, you know, the, I don't know, the you know vaccine for whooping cough or something. Well, you know, suddenly when a bunch of kids around you get whooping cough, that vaccine is going to look pretty good. And, you know, a lot of that at doctors or quack stuff goes out the window. Everybody likes to argue with their doctor uh, until their fever is 102. And then suddenly, you know, they start respecting the notion of medical school all over again. I think a big part of the death of expertise problem is actually that it's a disease of affluence. It's It's the kind of narcissistic arrogance that can only overtake people when things are actually going really well and they don't realize it um, you know why did experts think think of it this way why did experts become so ascendant in the 1950s and 60s it's because populist nonsense and, and populist insanity destroyed the world in the 1930s and 40s that from the, the failure of the League of Nations and the Great Depression and protectionism and all these other, you know, idiotic ideas that obliterate the planet, the the world deferred to experts who then sat down and you know had you know went to Bretton Woods and created the United Nations and you know set up the the international monetary standards and tried to create mechanisms for uh, dealing with the arms race and did all those things that have actually created a, remarkable, a remarkably advanced world in the 21st century. I, I, I fear that that's what it's going to take, that that's going to happen again, that we're going to have some disaster where you know people kind of snap out of it and say, okay, maybe I ought to listen to people who are smarter than I am. With that said, I do think experts in the short term – have an obligation to re-engage with the public, to do what I'm doing right now, to go out and take your lumps, take those criticisms, have people shout at you about what an elitist you are, you know, but nonetheless, plant the flag and say expertise matters. It's important to listen to experts. It's important to have you know, people engaged in an informed debate, <clears throat> not a random debate, not in any debate, but in an informed debate about the future direction of policy in their country. Um, and I think experts have withdrawn from that because the, the mob has become so, um, um, you know, cranky and difficult to deal with. And I think most experts have just withdrawn from the public sphere and say, you know, it's too difficult to talk to people. Screw it. I'll talk to my colleagues. I'll write articles for my colleagues. I'll live my life on the other side of this moat from, you know, all these angry people I can't reason with. I think that is a dereliction of expert duty. Experts need to re-engage with the public to make their case and, and to get out there whether they like it or not. Uh, I think that's a short-term thing experts can do, but I think I fear that in the long term, the only thing that's really going to end this phase of populist um, feverishness that we're living through is some terrible disaster brought about by this kind of populism that will end up snapping people out of it. And, I, and I'm, I'm uh, part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is that I want things to change before that happens.
1: Well, on that cheery note, um, (laughs) I'd I'd like to thank uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Tom Nichols, for coming on the show. Um, That book is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Um, We'll have a link up so you can purchase the book from Amazon or or wherever. Um, Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Uh, Nichols for coming on the show. Thank you so much.
0: Well, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Uh,
1: Of course.